This is episode 90 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, and I'm your host, John S. For today's podcast, we will be playing a recording of a panel discussion from the Widening the Gateway Secular AA Conference that was held in Tacoma, Washington on March 31, 2018. The panel was led by John H. from the We Agnostics Group in Washington, D.C. John was kind enough to allow us to share the recording with you. Joining John is Mary G., who attends a women's secular AA meeting in Tucson, Arizona, and Bill K. from the Many Paths Group in Burien, Washington. We edited out a portion of the audio with audience comments at the end. If you would like to hear the original recording in full, please visit the website atheisticaa.com. So without further ado, the Core of Recovery panel with John H., Mary G., and Bill K. My name's John. I'm an alcoholic, and uh, I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm not from here. A few of you may have heard me speak in other venues or seen me, seen some of my screeds on the Internet or uh, some of my other uh, protestations, but I'll, I'll briefly tell you a little bit about who and what I am and then maybe go into, uh, you know, the direction that I thought this particular panel might take. Suffice it to say, you know, I've been around for a long time. I went to my first meeting in D.C. in January of 1987, and I was a desperately sick 38-year-old puppy when I first came into these uh, into these rooms. Unfortunately, I was in the type of career and worked for the type of company in a type of business where any kind of association with a psychiatrist, a treatment center, or any other kind of medical professional would have meant career suicide. And uh, that's one of the things that kept me from getting a little bit of help long before I needed it. And even though I will have some highly critical things to say about various aspects of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'll, I'll talk about the good parts first. You know, uh, I genuinely believe that Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. There's no question that I had reached a point in my sobriety where I was either going to kill myself or do something about it. I was not the type of person I was so ego-driven and so completely egocentric that it was absolutely impossible for me to even consider falling down the social scale. So I, I reached my bottom at a pretty in a pretty nice condo at 17th and R Northwest with a paid-up car in the basement and a career that took me many different places. And when I saw my both my personal life and my professional life basically eventually going away, it became obvious to me that I would, I wouldn't put up with that. And I was going to either just end it or do something. And the fact that I picked up the phone and made that call to the Washington area in a group association office and found my first meeting, which was really bizarrely enough, the, uh, the infamous Midtown group in, uh, Washington, my first meeting was at Midtown, and those ladies that have uh, researched, uh, you know, some of the negative aspects of AA, this was long before, years before Midtown washed up on the rocks of uh, 
uh, of a real scandal. Uh, but I, I only went to that group once or twice. It wasn't one of my regular venues. But when I first walked down the stairs into that meeting, and in those days, those of you that are old like me, you'll remember the smoke. Remember the smoke, the miasma of smoke. And I was a two-pack-a-day lucky smoker, and it was too much for me when I went in. There was so much smoke in the room. It's like incredible. The younger ones don't even know what I'm talking about, but it was it was incredible. And I walked down the bottom of the stairs, and sitting at the bottom of the stairs was a defrocked Episcopal priest who I used to drink with years before in the old Admiral Benbow Bar on Connecticut Avenue in Washington back in the 70s. And he had disappeared. I didn't know what, what happened to him. And uh, Brother John's sitting at the bottom of the stairs, and he said exactly the right words to me. He said, what in the fuck took you such a long time to come down here? And that was precisely what I needed to hear. I didn't need to hear, oh, poor me, poor you. You're such a broken, you know, unhappy person. You know, just what, what, why did it take you so long to figure it out? And I immediately knew right from the beginning that I was in the right place. Just like the doctor just described in the, I, I loved his chart, by the way. It was a great chart. But the red cloud, the pink cloud chart. I just, Immediately when I stopped drinking, I was so relieved that I wasn't going to kill myself that I just went right up into the stat stratosphere on a pink cloud and managed to detox myself and find a group of like-minded people on Rhode Island Avenue in the, uh, uh, in the cathedral on Rhode Island Avenue, that famous church that JFK was, uh, was buried out of, St. Matthew's Cathedral, right at Connecticut and Rhode Island. And in next to that church was this broken down old church building that the AA meetings were held in. And I found a group of like-minded people that really, really had my sobriety as their number one priority. That's what I felt right from the beginning. And this was a conventional AA meeting. That was wonderful. Then the problems started. Okay, I started going to lots and lots of AA meetings. And I remember one day in late 1987, early 1988, I was uh, sitting in a meeting in another, I, I don't know why I had such an affinity for Catholic churches, but I was in this uh, Catholic church on V Street Northwest, which is in a very dangerous neighborhood at the time. It's all yupped up now, but uh, you could hear the gunfire from the street over, okay, sometimes. You'd hear a gunshot. It was a bunch of shooting galleries and drug dealers on the next block near 14th and V Northwest. And at the end of this meeting, they would, they would, you know, th you know, they would actually chant when they got to the end of the passage, would or could if he were sought. Okay. Would or could if he were sought. I just, you know, I won't go into, I won't, you know, I, I won't traumatize you with the rest of it, but I just said, I can't do this shit if they're gonna, and they chanted it in unison, would or could. I said, what have I gotten myself into now? All right. What is this? Basically, what is this shit? All right. And by the time the summer of 1988 rolled around, I was about, about 18 months in, I was on my way out and I had one afternoon sitting in my office, which was downtown on 23rd Street. 23rd and M. And I'm sitting in my office and I said to myself, I'm going to the Child Herald and I'm going to order, uh, two shots of Jack and a Heineken. And then I'm going to get started. And because I just can't do this shit anymore. Right. I, that's the last time I had a 
very serious moment when I was going to go out and do it. And for some reason unknown to me, instead of going to the Child Herald, I went, I left my office and went to a 5.30 p.m. meeting, this one in a black evangelical church, a step up, okay, from the Catholic. And uh, the music's much better. And, uh, you know, not to mention the company. But I went there, and I didn't drink, but I knew that I was in trouble. And then a miracle happened. Two atheists showed up. And it, it was it's a secular miracle in my life. Two atheists showed up, two retired atheists, people about the age I am now, showed up at the WAIA office on Connecticut Avenue, and they were volunteering on the phone. So the two of them sitting side by side, Maxine and Tom, both of them, unknowns to each other, were militant atheists. I know that some of you are going to cringe at the term militant atheists and probably report back to headquarters in Canada or whatever, whatever <laughs> up to Roger's place or wherever, to Sheldon's place or some. Huey said, yeah, tell him, I said militant atheists once again. Our group was founded by two militant atheists, one from the University of Chicago, a brilliant man who had worked on the Manhattan Project, had a, just an incredible career, and another lady, kind of wealthy lady that owned art galleries in Georgetown. And she, it, the two of them got together, and Tom had been to this meeting in Chicago and said, uh, there's this meeting in Chicago called uh, Quad A, Atheist Agnostics or whatever in Chicago. We should start one here. And they put an ad in the local AA newsletter, and two weeks later, I'm sitting in Maxine's living room at this incredible apartment building, which I actually later got a place in, a place called the Broadmoor, Connecticut and Porter. And I'm sitting in Maxine's living room, and I'm, you know, I'm literally, I'm saved, okay? Because the first things out of their mouth is, we don't do that effing 12 steps. We don't pay any attention to the big book. And what we're going to do here, what our intent is here, is to share our experience in sobriety with our fellow alcoholics. That was a nutshell. And, oh, we're going to read the AA preamble, right? The real AA preamble, not the fake one that we came up with, but the real one, okay? The real AA preamble at the beginning and at the end, because that's what AA really is, the fellowship of men and women, blah, 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 blah. And then we're going to get up and we're going to leave, and we're not going to have anything else in the meeting but that and our sharing. And they literally saved my ass because I was the next time, because I travel a lot. I've always traveled a lot. I don't travel as much now as I do for various reasons, but I still am around. I've been around a lot. I've gone around. And I knew that sooner or later something was going to happen out on the road or because of work stress or personal stress or whatever. I knew I was headed out the door. And those two saved my ass. And I haven't had to make any compromises with AA since. No bullshit about the 12 steps. No bullshit about the big book. No revisionist theories or any other kind of rationalization from that day to this. They saved my life. So if I sound emphatic and I take these things to what some people might call extremes, there's a reason for it. Because I would have gone out and finished the job good and proper if these folks hadn't have come up with a few simple ideas. And here here were the ideas in a nutshell. And it's not written down anywhere. I don't have any books to sell out. I've got a book, though. You can buy get my website up. But it has nothing to do with AA. Okay? It has to do with my years in Moscow. But if you want to buy my Moscow book, come to me. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But, you know, you won't see any of my stuffed books on the table. 
out there, okay? Because it would be a very short book. I mean, it would like, it would have like less than half a page on it. Because what I learned from Maxine and Tom, and our meeting's still ongoing, by the way, that meeting still exists and still doing very well. We'll have its 30th anniversary this coming September. But the fact is that if you make a decision about your drinking, that's the one part that's thorny. All right. That's the one. That's why I've got to talk to the professor, the doctor, you know, because I'm very fascinated with this idea of making a decision. Because if you don't make a decision, there's no hope of any kind whatsoever. That comes from within. But once you make a decision, you pick up the phone, you go to a meeting, you learn how to share, honestly share what's going on with you in your life. And then once you've learned how to honestly share, you attempt to help another alcoholic. So if you don't, you make a decision, you don't drink, you go to meetings, you share, and then you you help another alcoholic, you're going to have a meaningful life. And that's what my two late friends, Maxine and Tom, showed me because they came to this thing very late in life. Tom was a very senior U.S. government official who, if his alcoholism had ever been known, it was... He was a master at concealment and hiding things. And he had about 20 years when he died. Maxine came to AA relatively late when she lost one of her businesses because of her drinking. And um, she went to a rehab and, and she came in relatively late and had, but had about 10 years of really useful life. And what these guys proved to me, because I sat there and watched them do it, was that if you do a couple of simple things and you throw the rest of this crap out and don't even consider it because it's irrelevant, you can have a meaningful and a useful life, which is what I've attempted to have in the 31 years that I've been around. Now, some of these people in AA and even some people in secular AA, I've heard them talk about it, are going to tell you, poor sufferers, that you have to have something called a personality change, okay? Guess what? I'm the same honorary MF I've always been. I've never had a personality change. I never wanted to have a personality change, and I didn't. But what I had was a behavioral change, and the behavioral change led to progress in my life very similar to what the good doctor put up on the screen. And it's still going on. But I've never changed who I am. Because personally, I believe that doesn't happen. We do not change who we are. We can change what we do. And once we change what we do, then who we are goes to different places. So why do we now in secular AA have to come up with an alternative liturgy just to be acceptable to these people in the mainstream portion of our movement. I have, I was just, I had a, a interesting experience up in Canada. I don't know if there are any Canadians in the room today. I suspect there might be given our location, but I was at the regional meeting with my dear friend, uh, Joe C and, uh, my buddy Sam here was there as well. And Larry Knight, a couple other people I know. I should say Larry K. But uh, I was up there, and I was actually, I hadn't been shocked at a secular meeting in a long, long time. But I was shocked when 
in that meeting, during the course of that conference, at the beginning of every session, they read something called the Alternative 12 Steps. And that blew my mind. I had, in all my experience and all my years in AA, secular AA down here, I'd never seen such a thing. And then at the end of every session, they read this thing. We have a perfectly good thing called the AA preamble. It's an AA document. It's really, really good, right? But they read this thing called the responsibility pledge. I don't know what that is. It's some kind of thing they're reading. And they were chanting it in unison, saying it in unison. And I said, Am I back on V Street in 1987 listening to the gunshots over on the, on the next block? Excuse my language. You know, Rogers or other people have criticized me for using that bad language, but you know, where the fuck am I? Okay. What's going on here? All right. Are we going to take one set of liturgies that didn't work for a lot of us and replace it with another and then give the newcomer the impression they've got to do that? Okay. Now. I don't care what anybody reads. I don't care what anybody believes. Every individual member is absolutely free to do what they wish and believe what they wish and read what they wish, as is every group, okay? I didn't get up there in Canada and start yelling at the Canadians because that wasn't my... I was a guest, okay? That wasn't my group. It wasn't my place to do that. But what I'm postulating is that in the, you know, the theme of this talk, which is basically the big book and the 12 steps are el utterly irrelevant. Having postulated that, why would we come up with an alternative set of liturgies or steps or books? I even hear somebody's rewriting the big book now. I mean, how can you rewrite a book that bad? I mean, it's, it, 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 it's like, it's just, it's mind boggling. They've got a book out here that's called the annotated big book. They've got the big book with a They've got blank pages. I don't know where these people come from, but they have these blank pages that you annotate and write. And I said to them, they were shocked when I said, I said, you should print one that has all blank pages <laughs> in it. Okay. Where, what, what are we doing here? Right. We have to have a primary purpose. And the primary purpose I've always had is to stay sober and help another alcoholic when I can. I don't have any other primary purpose. My primary purpose is not to kowtow to a group of principles that I don't believe in by somehow modifying them and making them acceptable to a mythical majority. I refuse to do that. As an atheist, as a lifelong atheist, I refuse to do that. But now I've gotten to the part where I have to talk about compassion for our other sufferer, okay? I've been very lucky in my life. I, like the doctor said, I grew up with a lot of white privilege, white male privilege, which we all know about and people write about all the time. But I was particularly lucky and there was something in the United States called a liberal Republican. They're an extinct species of people. <laughs> I grew up in a home that was had two liberal Republicans at the head. And my mother was a liberal Republican feminist, which is... You know, if you watch CNN, just doesn't compute these days. But there were such people. They're all dead now, like my mom and dad, but there were such people. And, you know, I was very lucky. One morning I woke up, uh, I was 12 years old, and like Bill Wilson, I was a good Presbyterian. I'm also a salesman and went to college in Vermont. So I got a lot of points of, of identification with St. Bill. But... uh <laughs> 
you know, I, I woke up one morning and I told my mom, I said, mom, she says, time for church. I said, mom, I'm not going. And she says, why? And I said, well, I just don't believe that stuff anymore. And the liberal Republican looked at me and said, okay, and went off to church and left me alone. That was a very fortuitous event. The other event was, I mean, I didn't have to consider any of this stuff until I came to AA, but I had two very understanding old-time members of AA that knew me when I showed up, and they didn't propose that I do anything other than go to meeting when I first came. And at the time, I was having all kinds of, you know, romantic and emotional and other kind of problems. And I would call these guys up, these two of them, and I would call, and they were both the same, both crusty old-time, old-timer type guys. And I would say, I'm going on and on about my problems. And they, they, they somehow would get to the point of the conversation where they'd say, uh, did you have a drink today? And I'd say, no. And they'd say, oh, you're having a wonderful day. Goodbye. You know, I don't need to consider your heart-worn problems in life. The fact that you're having a, uh, you're not having a drink today is what our relationship is all about. And that really worked for me. Nobody tried to reform me. Nobody tried to force any mythology down my throat. And when I did start to go out in the wider AA world and the mythology got too much for me and I said I could no longer internally, I was saying more and more, I can't associate myself with people that basically are an arm of a religion, which is what AA is and has been found to be so in many courts of law in this great land of ours, that I can't be associated with religion. These people came up with this meeting and they saved my life. So I've been very fortunate. Others that are members of Secular AA have struggled in conventional meetings for many, many years, have only come to their atheism very late in life. And they may have a attachment to this mythology because that's what they were inculcated with that I don't have. And they have to make some kind of internal or external accommodation with that. And I have to understand that. Not every story is like mine. But I will postulate that for the hardcore atheist like myself, any form of steps, any form of big book reductionism, any codification of the traditional AA program in that way is toxic and poisonous and destructive because I think it could have killed me, but it didn't. So I guess that's basically what I have to say about the topic. And we'll we'll continue on with some other perspectives. And the young lady on my right, Mary, will speak to us next. My name is Mary. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Mary. Hi, everybody. I'm here visiting from Tucson, Arizona. It's great to be in the in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> My sobriety date is April 7th, 1987. I got sober in San Francisco. And, um, you know, when I came into AA, I had, uh, I had five weeks of sobriety. It was more like being on the wagon for five weeks. My husband and I decided to, um, to stop drinking. And, um, I was so excited when I walked into my first meeting to see, to see all of you sitting there. <laughs> And realizing that uh, there was a, I, I didn't know anything about AA. I didn't know anything about uh, recovery. I never knew anybody that was in recovery. I, I mean, I vaguely knew about 
headlines in the National Enquirer about some actors that might have gotten sober in Hollywood, but I didn't really understand anything about it. And I thought it was for men, basically. So when I walked in and I saw your happy faces and uh, men and women together uh, that looked a lot like the people I had been drinking with and working with, I was thrilled. And I was off and running. And in thinking back on, on my recovery, it seems to me it was very, it was very secular for me. I don't know if that's because I was in a big city or if I, if I really heard that idea of take what you need and leave the rest. I wasn't introducing myself as a newcomer because I was past the 30 day mark, but I, after my second or third meeting, some woman came up to me. I've never heard this said to anybody else in the 30, next week will be 31 years. I've been going to meetings, but a woman came up to me and she said, well, you're new. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm new. And she said, work the first three steps on your own and then get a sponsor when you're ready to work the fourth step. I said, okay. So I, uh, you know, I was listening to what people said. I thought, I thought, you know, well, I just work this on my own. Okay. I'm, I'm 32 years old. I'm, you know, I'm an adult. I can figure this out. I basically looked at it as honesty, open-mindedness and willingness as steps one, two, and three. I wasn't, uh, I didn't identify as an atheist, agnostic, really anything. I just, I was kind of a secular person. I didn't go to church. I hadn't been to church since I was about 12 or 13. And uh, so I just thought, I, I, I guess I took it to heart that I should use the program as my higher power. And I thought, okay, that's fine. That works for me. Uh, I didn't agonize over it very much. I basically thought, okay, honesty is I'm an alcoholic. Open-mindedness is uh, there's a program here. There's a there's meetings, there's a recovery community, and the third step was willingness, and that was, I'm willing to give this a try. I'm willing to embrace this recovery community. And um, shortly thereafter, when I was ready to do the fourth step, I thought, uh, I didn't have a sponsor. I was kind of making, you know, half-assed attempts to get a sponsor, mainly going up to women, asking them for phone numbers, and then never calling them, which I think is pretty common for a new person. So there was this uh, place called the Dry Dock, uh, where they had a four-step workshop. It was in a room, you know, maybe half this size with about 50 people in it. It was really crowded. We met once a week for four weeks, and this uh, British guy led the group on how to do the four-step exactly according to the big book. And we'd all have our notebooks. We'd go home and write with the columns and the questions. He said, don't tell people about this workshop. Sit down and show people how to work the fourth step according to these columns and these questions. You know, each one teach one. You know, take this out and to the community and use this uh, this method. He talked a little bit about the, at the end of the workshop, he talked a little bit about doing the fifth step. And on six and seven, he said, don't linger on six and seven. Just, just get into action and, uh, you know, keep going. I found a woman to hear my fifth step I met her at a meeting, asked her if she could hear my fifth step, and it was perfect because she was uh, moving 3,000 miles away shortly thereafter. <laughs> so it was like, great. You know, she was, uh, I don't even remember her name. It's sort of like they talk about, you know, meeting a stranger and, and, and doing your fifth step. I found my, I found my fourth step the other day, by the way. I hadn't looked at it in 30 years. That's an interesting exercise. <laughs> you know, looking at, I mean, it was very thorough. It was, you know... Uh, this poor gal, you know, we sat down a couple times for me to go through it all, but there was such that, that, that young woman, that 32 year old was so filled with fear and anxiety. And it was, it's been really interesting to look at that and see, see the, see me now. But, um, 
I mean, after that, when I when I started thinking about the uh, the eighth step, to be honest with you, I, I I went to therapy for the first time in my life. I I started to feel that it was very uh, shame based, and I sought out outside help for the first time in my life. Found a therapist who understood the twelve steps. The first woman I went to, you know, I thought I'll shop around for a therapist who's going to understand me, you know, and um, I think in retrospect, I never said I'm going to reject the steps the way they're written, but I think when I look back on it, I basically did them my way. And, you know, I continued, to me, just looking at the rest of the steps is about is about developing my ethics, cleaning house, maturing, you know, just growing into uh, an emotional maturity that I, that I needed to have, learning how to play well with others and helping others. And I think, of course, I went to a lot of step meetings. I went to a lot... Uh, one reason I think that my my relationship with the steps has not been traditional is that I also kind of rejected the sponsorship mo model. And one reason I I felt really uneasy about the sponsorship model was, you know, when people talked about being fired by their sponsor. That just I thought, well that, you know, I don't think it's supposed to be that kind of relationship. What's kept me sober, you know, without a sponsor is having always having some closed mouth friends that I could confide in and then they could confide in me and being keeping a really close-knit group of women in my life. I've lived in a couple of different places. I've been in Tucson now 20 years. You know, I have a I have a really core group of women in recovery that I connect with. And, you know, in, in a way, they have been my sponsors. I just haven't had a, that, oh, will you be my sponsor kind of relationship with one particular woman. So, And if I had had that, I probably would have had more of a defined system of going through the steps one by one. But I think... Over time, I've addressed all the principles of the steps uh, in my own way. And I, I love the talk that we just heard, you know, even to, to today, talking about um, when he talked about, you know, becoming a, becoming a citizen. You know, be, now, I'm, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing service, not just in NAA, but I do things in the community. You know, to me, it's about, it's about being a part of the, the larger community than just the recovery community. And, um, I only I only really came out as secular a couple of years ago. I've been sitting in um, you know traditional AA meetings for uh, at that point 28 years, and I heard a woman talk about being an uh, being an atheist, and it was an 11 step meeting, and she said, "Well, I certainly meditate, but I don't pray because I'm an atheist." And you know, the top of my head kind of exploded. <laughs> I had never heard that in a meeting before, and I realized, oh my gosh, you know. There's, a, you know, that's when I discovered this uh, sort of the secular AA. To me, that was an oxymoron. I didn't understand that it even existed. So um, I don't throw out the 12 steps because I know they've helped a lot of people. I've heard over the years how much they've helped people. But for me, they weren't a, a core part of my recovery. To me, it's been more finding my tribe. And secular AA is kind of my tribe within my tribe, I think. It's, and it's totally energized my recovery as far as really getting more into the history of, of AA and, um, discovering, um, we have three secular meetings in Tucson, you know, two of which have been going on for, uh, about three years and one that's just started, uh, women's meeting. As far as the big book is concerned, I never warmed up to the big book. I never really, the only thing I really, was blown away with in the big book when I first came in was was that uh, more about alcoholism where they described all the things we we tried before we got sober 
that that really got my attention because I thought, wow, these people really understand alcoholism. <laughs> this is this is where you come to really understand uh, the addiction. So I never really embraced it. I never read the big book on my own. I, of course, I've heard it, you know, and I've read this. I've heard the stories. I, I, it's like I didn't avoid big book meetings, but I didn't ever sit down and read it on my own. It it seemed very constipated in the writing and. I just see it more as a historic document. I have respect for it, but I don't. Uh, I don't have a copy of the big book that's all underlined and highlighted and, and notated. I never just. I, I just see it as a historical document that's really, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, I never even really, you know, I read the. I read the twelve and twelve, of course. Uh, I finally got my home group to read the traditions. You know, in addition to the twelve steps, they had never read the traditions before in the meeting. I mean, I'm talking about the chapters, chapter by chapter. And I got a lot of flack for that. And I said, well, why are we taking this book and reading it halfway through and starting over again and reading it halfway through, year after year after year? You know, <laughs> Let's read the second half of the book. I, I became sort of a tradition thumper. And sure enough, there was people in that meeting then, they're like, man, this stuff is really interesting. You know, They, they had never re- read the second half of the book. But... Um, I think this discussion is very healthy about what's going on with secular AA. Are we within AA? Are we outside AA? Uh, I think it's a very healthy discussion. Uh, I, what I see for my myself is that in the, especially in the um, women's group that we started, it's called uh, it's in a women's uh, it's in a it's in an independent bookstore called Mostly Books. So we named the meeting Mostly Agnostics. A lot of newcomers that walk in there. What I'm discovering is. A lot of the new, the young women that come into our meeting are already agnostic atheists. It's like not a, not a discussion in their head about am I or am I not. They're just thrown by the, by the faith-based program is what I call AA. I don't call it religious, but I call it faith-based. And I just, I just felt like we, we do say the responsibility declaration at the end of the meeting. We don't, it's not a pledge because we don't do pledges in AA. I decided to take the responsibility declaration to heart and to take it very seriously that when anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of secular AA always to be there. And for that, I am responsible because I want these gals to realize that, uh, uh, there is, there is uh, hope for them. And, um, you know, I'm more upset about the, the stories I hear from these gals that they're fired by their sponsor if they can't have a higher power that looks like their sponsor's a higher power. Or they're, they're, they get flack in meetings for talking about being, uh, agnostic or atheist. They get dirty looks. They get, I got, I, I talked in, in, in a traditional meeting about being, um, an agnostic. I purposely did it at the end of the meeting when I came out because I didn't want everybody to be talking about their higher power. So I just said it at the end of the meeting. It was kind of a newer women's meeting that I, I hadn't been to before. You know, and people came up to me. They were so condescending. They were they were going, it's okay. I've been there before. That's happened to me. You'll come back around. I, mean, I don't mean to say this, but not realizing I'm 30 years sober. Like, don't drink over this kind of thing, you know. It was, uh, it was and I was just, oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, like, you'll be okay. Don't, don't worry. You'll get your higher power back, is kind of yeah. what they were saying. This is just a phase you're going through. But, um, my, my main thing is how to reach out to the, to the new people. Uh, large percentage of millennials are coming in secular, uh, people. They're not, 
converting to secular or atheism. They already are. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, well, they have other places to go. They have smart recovery. They have SOS. They have this, they have that, but they don't have the number of meetings that we have, those other groups. You know, we can be there for them. And for that, I am responsible. And I take that, uh, I take that very seriously. What, if they want to work the steps a secular way, I'd be happy to do that with them. You know, I, I think it's a very personal choice. If you want to change the wording, Josie says, change the words, the words won't mind. You know, I'll, I'm ready to meet people wherever they are. If they want to, if they don't, if they want to, don't want to work the steps, fine. If they want to read the 12 and 12, fine. I, I tell people when, when they want me to sponsor them, I say, I'm not going to read the big book with you. If you want to read the big book cover to cover, chapter by chapter, I'm not your, I'm not your sponsor material, but here's my number. Give me a call. And I've gotten flack for that from people, people saying to me, I heard you don't, you know, you don't read the big book with your sponsor, with your sponsee. It's like, well, what business is that of yours? You know, it's kind of my attitude because I have a, I've also been sent back to the, um, to the literature. And, you know, one thing I will, I will put a plug in for the sponsor question and answer sponsorship pamphlet, which I think is really very good. It says we're not here to uh, tell people how to work their program as sponsors. And it also says in the, in the great section, it says, what about the spiritual side of the program? What if my sponsee doesn't get the spiritual side of the program? And the pamphlet says, basically, there is no separate spiritual side of the program. The spiritual side is one alcoholic reaching out to another. You know, it doesn't say, you know, uh, my, that you have to believe in a higher power, that it, your higher power has to look like mine. I mean, I've gotten so I don't even use that terminology, but I love that section that says, you know, if you don't understand this, that spiritual means us helping one another, then, you know, that's really what it, what it is. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop and look forward to hearing from someone else. Thanks. Okay. Hi, my name is Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bill. Yeah, it's a kind of a couple of tough acts to follow here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was just thinking of my, when I was a child, my mother left me out in the rain and my brain warped and things have been the same since. But, uh, you know, John mentioned something earlier. That really resonated with me because, you know, I've heard around the tables, the only thing you have to change is everything. And I never bought into that. You know, I'm, I'm basically the, uh, same person that I've been for a long time. I'm very easy to buy for at Christmas time, uh, because everybody knows who I like and you know, so forth. And so that uh, works pretty easily. But I got to thinking, I, I called uh, John Thursday night, as a matter of fact, and we talked for a while and that was really pretty neat. The conversation we had just was a few minutes. It was, it was a pretty lively conversation and I, and I enjoyed that. But, uh, two of my favorite comics are Lenny Bruce and George Carlin. And one of my favorite things I remember is he said, okay, if there is a God, may he strike us dead. And he went out to the audience. Okay. We're good. He says, now I'm going to up the ante. He said, if there is a God, may he strike me dead. Well, I did get a little cramp in my left leg, but other than that, <laughs> uh, and, you know, so that's why, you know, by, actually I belong to uh, uh, an atheist website, and there's some really funny stuff in there. But, and so probably throughout my life, you know, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth. You know, I, I grew up in kind of a crazy situation, and there were people from my church that did very good things for me when I was a teenager, when I was an aspiring hoodlum back in New Jersey, and uh, they kept me out of trouble. Uh, but I never did buy into the, uh, the God thing. As a matter of fact, even Jesus was easier for me because I saw pictures of him. Or at least what pictures people thought he looked like. He looked like a surfer dude. And, uh, but, uh, I just, I just couldn't buy into it. Uh, and I can remember, but in, in AA, I had gone through the motion for years. Uh, because, well, 
I'm, I spent 20 years in the Army and I'm a German extraction, so, you know, I have to follow the rules. I found that it was, it was, it was getting more and more difficult uh, to buy into it. And uh, like I said, having listened to people like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and people that were doing, uh, and not just funny stuff, but smart stuff, thought-provoking stuff about uh, religion and so forth, I, I found it more and more difficult. As a matter of fact, last night I uh, started reading a little bit of We Agnostics to kind of get the juices flowing for the <laughs> I think, you know, there, there, as, uh, as Mary mentioned, you know, that one of my favorite parts of the big book is that part that talks about more about alcoholism because it talks about all the ways that we tried to drink and all the ways we failed. Uh, there's another part, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it talks about how many times we found ourselves sitting at the bar, you know, pounding on the bar saying, how did this happen again? Uh, so that part I can relate to, but I found the uh, parts about being... Uh, religious and so forth, or not being able to accept God as your higher power, to be really condescending. I was talking with some folks last night, and um, and, and I, I did the research, because I hadn't pulled the book out in years. I mean, I had, I had this little 12 and 12 book, a little blue one, about that big. And I hadn't, I wasn't even quite sure where it was, but I finally found it, uh, because I had given her some information that I remembered from that book, and I said, well, I'd better check it and make sure that I've given her the right information. And, and this is one of the things that put me over the line. There was this thing in there that it talked about different types of uh, people who had difficulty believing. And it, there was the last one said, uh, let's start with the one who has no faith at all. Uh, this is the belligerent one. Uh, his, uh, his thinking can only be regarded as savage, something along those lines. And then later on, on page 31, it says, uh, you know, the word defiance is mentioned about three times. Uh, and there's also a portion that we read it's interesting that there's a meeting that I go to, uh, and I went to a long time ago. <clears throat> it's a first step hall, and I go there primarily because I have a lot of friends there, and and it always makes me feel better when I you know go into a meeting, uh, and uh, you know, I, I kind of disregard the uh, you know the chanting and that you know, I participate, but it doesn't really mean a whole hell of a lot. But one of the things that uh, that I found uh, going there uh, was uh, oh they, they read. A portion, and I think it was from uh, Dr. Bob. And if I can interject something very quickly, and I don't know how anybody else feels about this, but I do not feel that the first 164 pages are a sacred document, and or that Bill and Bob are, you know, because it's funny. This uh, first step all that I go to, there is almost an altar at the place. There is, you know, the podium, and there's a picture of Bill and Bob, and there's the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, shades. And uh, so, if you're a newcomer, you might be a little you know, uh, concerned about all this. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the one comment that Bob made was that something along the lines of um, if you have any kind of uh, intellectual or philosophical difficulties with accepting that God is your, as, as your higher power, then I feel sorry for you. And that kind of goes back uh, to what Mary was talking about, because we talked a little bit last night. Uh, one of the most offensive things I've ever heard or had said to me in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, fake it until you make it. Like, oh, you silly atheist. You know, you'll come around. And uh, and I found that to be a little troublesome also. Uh, so I was at my uh, my wife's home group. Uh, I didn't normally go there, but I had a rare Saturday off. And so I went to the meeting. And I just got to the point where I was starting to talk at meetings about my atheism. And, and not only have I lost AA friends, but I've also lost family friends. Uh, you know, for, for my atheism. So I, I had mentioned at the meeting, I said, you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, it was very uncomfortable for gays and lesbians to go to a lot of meetings. Uh, and, you know, I would be, you know, uh, I would be naive to think that that still doesn't go on, but it is still, I think, from my experience, uh, a lot more safer, particularly in a city like Seattle, 
uh, where, where folks can be much more comfortable, but that I felt very often as an atheist. That's why I've, I've often used the term coming out as an atheist, uh, because, uh, as been already mentioned, you know, people will kind of sneer and glare at you when, you know, I talk about not believing in any kind of supernatural power that controls anybody or anything. Well, you know, it's like a fart in church. I mean, that just doesn't go over well at all. So, so I mentioned that uh, at the meeting, and a woman came up to me, and I uh, probably shouldn't say this, but anyway, I will. But there was my friend, uh, a friend of mine in the program, and this woman came up to me, and her nickname got to be Sister Mary Margaret, and uh, she kind of read me the riot act. Actually, it wasn't until about maybe about four or five days later at another meeting, she came up kind of read me the riot act, because I had... Uh, I mentioned about, um, you know, how uh, very often, you know, gays and lesbians were beat up. And that sometimes as an atheist, that's what I was concerned about. Because I had had some pretty nasty things said to me. And she came up later on, she said, well, you know, my dad was an atheist. He never got beat up and blah, 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 blah. And I, I started to explain, I said, no, I'm not even going to, I'm just going to let this one go. So after that, uh, you know, we went out for lunch uh the next the next week and uh we were talking about it with my friend Tom who had been very uh instrumental in putting a lot of this together and also started the many paths group there in, in the Burian. So we were all talking about that and I mentioned it to him. Uh I just kind of was talking about it in general. But uh, we went home and I mentioned it to my wife and uh she said, Well don't worry about it because Tom's gonna start a meeting in about two or three weeks. And uh you know he's been a real go getter as far as getting uh meetings started, secular meetings started. Uh we have one in uh Burian Community Center on uh, Sunday mornings, uh, there's one at the Solution Bookstore in Burian uh on Wednesday nights. And uh so there was a real uh, I felt comfortable uh, you know, for the for the first time. It, it's probably already been mentioned. And and it's ironic because our Sunday morning meeting is in uh, the Burian Community Center, which we also share with a rock band church group. You know, it's like the, the swaying back and forth and, and that sort of thing. But what, you know, I was thinking about and I have to be careful about is that I don't come on as self-righteous to them about my non-belief. And you say, hey, you guys are idiots. What, are you kidding? I mean, because my, it's funny when I think about it. Uh, there was a cartoon that I saw on one of the atheist websites that I, that I look at, and there were some pilgrims. And there are Indians out there doing rain dances. And they're like, savages are crazy. What are you doing out there? And then they walk into the church and they kneel down and say, please, God, bring us some rain. And so that, uh, you know, that sums up a lot of the feelings that I have uh, about God and, and religion. You know, one of the first things I read was, well, gee whiz, if God is so omnipotent, why didn't you just flick Hitler's head off? And so those are the kinds of things that started to form my thinking. Uh, and so that I found the stuff in the big book and also in the 12 and 12. You know, the 12 and 12 can be... Uh, the, the uh, essays that Bill wrote, I guess, in the 50s, uh, those can be pretty condescending also. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's where I, uh, you know, the, the part about uh, the, uh, you know, the belligerent one and the, the savage, the defiant, the savage, the whole bit, you know, this, uh, and, uh, and so that certainly affected my thinking. I, you know, I, I went along, like I said, I went along with a lot of it in, in the very beginning. And, and it's funny, uh, I just thought about this, John had mentioned it, and I had someone, an early sobriety that was like that. It was a guy named Jay Slavin, uh, passed away a couple of years ago. And, uh, I'm from Elizabeth, New Jersey. And if there's some folks that have ever seen the opening credits to the TV show, The Sopranos, well, that's my old neighborhood. So, uh, and he was from Brooklyn, New York. So we hit it off right away. And Jay always seemed to have a cigarette hanging from his mouth. I don't know, back when he could smoke at meetings. And, uh, I would, I was pretty new. I only had about maybe five or six months and I'd be going on and on about this, that, and the other thing. And finally he was, and he would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally we stop and they say, well, did you drink today? 
I said, no. He said, well, then what's your fucking problem? <laughs> and that kind of put it in perspective for me that, you know, there was uh, a lot of uh, kind of self-centered whining that I was doing. And that is, you know, that's one of the things I think that uh, sobriety has helped me with. And, and I certainly agree with John that, uh, um, for instance, my home group, you know, we don't hold hands and we don't chant. Uh, and and it's the group is pretty new, so we have to tell people who come from other AA meetings that uh, we don't chant or hold hands for our meetings. So please, thank you, you know, thank you for being here and your help with picking up the chairs and tables is appreciated. Uh, but as far as joining hands or doing any kind of chanting, now this meeting that I go to, the first step hall, uh, that's, uh, they do hold hands and chant. <clears throat> and you have the option of doing a large prayer or, uh, Serenity prayer, I, I suggested the hokey pokey, that it didn't go over very well at all. <laughs> uh, but, um, what I do, particularly at that meeting, cause like I said, I enjoy the meeting, I enjoy, the, I enjoy the people there. Uh, I don't always enjoy what I hear, uh, but you know, on page 84 of the big book, it says, love and tolerance is our code. And so I try to practice that a little bit. So when they do serenity prayer, I'll kind of bow my head, but I won't say the prayer. And then when the meeting is over and they join hands, whatever prayer they say, I just bow my head. And I don't say anything. And that seems to have, have worked pretty well. But, uh, it's the, the group that I go to, um, my, uh, home group, I really feel so much more comfortable in that environment. And it's, uh, then I, uh, I think the, uh, the doctor mentioned it about, uh, AA becoming, you know, or the secular part of AA becoming a part of mainstream AA. And, uh, I hope that's the case. I'm really concerned about that though. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, because it's, and I guess, you know, any changes is kind of slow. Uh, but uh, as already been mentioned, you know, there's, there's still that, uh, uh, the kind of sneering and glaring and condescending kind of attitude, uh, that goes on, uh, when, when I mention about, like I said, I, when I talk about not believing in a supernatural being, uh, that doesn't uh, go very well. Uh, so I have rambled on long enough here. And thank you for listening. Well, that was a fantastic panel. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thanks again to John H. for taking the time to record it and allowing us to play it here for everybody. Uh, hey, if you again, if you want to hear the full recording with the audience commentary, please visit John's website, atheisticaa.com. That's atheisticaa.com. Well, we'll be back again real soon. I'll try to get back on our regular weekly schedule with the podcast. Uh, we've got some interesting ones coming up. In fact, two of the main speakers from the Widening the Gateway Secular AA Conference will be featured in upcoming podcasts. So uh, stay tuned, folks. We'll be back again real soon.